This episode was recorded during the dual WGA and SAG-AFTRA strike. As fans and content creators, we stand in solidarity with the creatives currently on strike. There is power in a union. I'm JP Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Are you my mommy, Kiki? Nope, no mummies here. Just, just chickens. Well, just this one chicken. Fantastic. <laughs> yes, we are back in the TARDIS talking the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. And we finally reached the revival series, the reboot series, New Who, whatever you want to call it, with the ninth Doctor, Christopher Eccleston. For a lot of people, this was their entry point into the franchise. So, I'll, I'll be honest with you, this is when I started watching regularly. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it before that I kind of missed when uh, Doctor Who was on PBS in mm-hmm. the States as a regular thing. Um, I knew about Doctor Who just because of geek culture but the revival was when i started watching regularly so this was kind of and kind of not my entry into the series same for me sort of i mentioned that my entry point was the 96 tv movie i know i know but um yeah when the revival was announced uh i uh, Maya started watching it when it aired in the States on the Sci-Fi Channel. Oh, the Sci-Fi era of Doctor Who. That 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 was a whole mess onto itself. We, we can do an entire podcast on the way Sci-Fi was handling Doctor Who. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but before we really get into the revival of Doctor Who, we left off at the 96 TV movie. Let's pick up the timeline and work our way up. Obviously, the 96 TV movie didn't do anything. The wilderness years continues. No new Doctor Who. Nothing much happens until 1999, where two big things happen. First, of course, Big Finish Productions, uh, founded by Nicholas Briggs. Uh, They get the license and are able to produce brand new Doctor Who audio adventures monthly, with the original actors reprising their roles, something that they still do to this day. The other thing that came out that year would be the parody sketch, The Curse of Fatal Death, which was the first Doctor Who TV story written by Stephen Moffat. Of course, uh, Curse of Fatal Death featured Rowan Atkinson, Richard E. Grant, Jim Broadbent, Hugh Grant, and Joanna Lumley as different incarnations of the Doctor. It's on YouTube if you want to watch it. I recommend it. It's a nice uh, little parody of Doctor Who. Fast forward to 2003, and we are at the 40th anniversary of Doctor Who, and it doesn't look like there's anything coming from the BBC side, at least in terms of anything announced publicly. Uh, This is where we, 
You know, no reunion specials, no new shows, no new documentaries, nothing. Nothing officially stated. I'll get back to that. So, enter the online division of the BBC, BBC Interactive. Now, BBC I had produced, uh, I guess you can call them motion comics of Doctor Who. Taking the audio from the Big Finish stories and adding uh, comic book style artwork. One or two frame animation stuff, giving some visual representation to those stories. But with the 40th anniversary coming up, they wanted to do something more. If BBC proper wasn't going to reboot the series, they would. And they had planned to do it as a Flash animated series released online. Which would lead us to um, Scream of the Shalka. Which starred Richard E. Grant as the Doctor and Derek Jacoby as the Master. Huh, Derek Jacoby as the Master. Wonder if that'll work out. Yeah, they should uh, do something with that, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they intended for Shalka to be the first in a full series of animated Doctor Who episodes that will be released online. Starting with this on the 40th anniversary was it was supposed to be the start of a new animated series days before shalka was to premiere the bbc proper would announce that doctor who was coming back in a new live action series set to film in the new year of 2004 for a 2005 release with queerest folk creator russell t davies as the new showrunner bbc bringing it back New Doctor, new companion, new format. No longer the one story stretched, apart, stretched over several half-hour episodes. It was one, one single hour-long episode per story. Uh, as Davies would say, he took inspiration primarily from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That each episode would be an individual story and then elements of it would be telling a... a overall story that would get culminated in the finale. It's something Doctor Who had tried before with the key to time back in Tom Baker's era. Just they never were able to make that work. And they kind of tried something similar to that during the Seventh Doctor era with, with Ace's backstory. But the show was canceled before they could really finish that. So to take that kind of... Uh, that format of storytelling and actually and actually do it uh i thought it was i think it was a was a good thing i think it was a good move yeah also i think that it was much better because we're a modern audience would not Especially a modern British audience. I think it would have gone over better with the American audience, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But a modern British audience is not used to the old Doctor Who format, especially modern British youth, I don't think. Even, um, by, the, even by the end of Doctor Who's original run, that format was already outdated. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Um, but 
you know, the only kind of shows in the UK especially, but even over here now anymore, um, that kind of run on that elongated format are kind of soap operas, really. Mm. And it's kind of what it feels like. You watch old Doctor Who and it feels like the closest thing I have in an American equivalent is like old episodes of dark shadows, mm. which was a legitimate soap opera. You know, it's, it's sci-fi, uh, you know, like a sci-fi fantasy horror thing, you know, it's very much geek media, but it's also a soap opera. Um, and so doctor who really had a kind of very soap opera format in the classic series. And that is not going to fly with a new audience. So that change was absolutely the first brilliant thing they did. I also like that they've added the cold open to every episode, starting with the revival, which pretty much is episode one of the serial cut down to the main plot of that episode one. Yeah. Again, we talked a, a lot about this with the classic episodes where it's like, ooh, this entire half hour is the first, like, two minutes of a modern Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. And it just feels so tedious going back and watching some of them because, like, the first ep episode drags, but man, is that final, like, two-minute cliffhanger of episode one, just a banger on almost all of them. Almost all the ones, at least the ones that we saw for the podcast so far. Yeah, but I mean, even some of the ones we didn't talk about, mm. you know, because some some of the some of the series had like we really had trouble picking, you know, which episodes to do because there are so many good episodes in some of those. But it's like some of them you you sit through like 20 minutes of episode and you're like oh this is boring and then those last like two or three minutes is just such a gripping cliffhanger and you're like oh if this was a cold open in modern doctor who this would be absolutely awesome i mean a lot and and you know let's let's not Let's not lie, a lot of the classic Doctor Who stories struggle to even make those four-episode, six-episode length stories, but it just drags on and on, and you often think that there's not enough story to go the length that these episodes need to be. At least in the modern series, a four- or six-episode uh, serial is cut down to 45 minutes. And in some cases, the 45 minutes, there's not enough time to get the story proper. But in most cases, yeah, this is the perfect length. Um, I think that it serves them better in the modern era because most Doctor Who stories are an hour, maybe two hours tops. Mm. Uh, as far as an actual super interesting plot. And they always have been. And I think that's one of the things this rewatch has really taught us. Mm. Is that from the beginning, Doctor Who plots maybe two hours. 
And that's the really good ones. <laughs> yeah. Most of them have about an hour, you know, 40, 40 45 minutes of plot. Stretched um, over three hours, five hours, six hours. Ugh. Yeah, some of those early ones were just uh, such a slog to get through. Even though the plot was good, you're like, oh, this this needed an editor. Um, but yeah, so brilliant move to to yeet the old format and be like, okay, we're gonna do this in a modern way and up update Doctor Who for modern sensibilities. For the modern audience, um, and make it more, you know, accessible. I, I would, yeah, say. make it more accessible. But I think the other thing that they did right was that, you know, there's the old joke about British kids hiding behind the sofa and how Doctor Who was so scary to to little british kids and stuff and you watch it back now and you're like you know for a for a show that started up you know not long i mean you know okay 20 years but like this was like the boomer generation and stuff. Their parents had been through war, and you're like, "This is what scared their kids." You know? <laughs> yeah. But I think what's really good is that some of the new episodes are proper hide behind the sofa creepy. And the thing about the Moffat episodes is that it takes something, in some cases, very ordinary, and makes it the scariest thing in the world. Oh, I am. I mean, I think Stephen Moffat has children. I, I fear for those children. Like, I, I think there's there's a good reason why eventually they got Neil Gaiman to write an episode. <laughs> because we've we've talked about that that kind of thing before. And it's like, man, there are some people who just go like, I know how to traumatize a child for life. And bless Stephen Moffat, he is one of those people that can do that. And more power to him. You know? Mm-hmm. He is he is right up there with with Gaiman and Guillermo del Toro and like some of the other ones where you're like, <laughs> which is really weird because because Moffat started out as a sitcom writer for the BBC if if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, Coupling is one of my favorite sitcoms. I mean, brilliant, brilliant show. Um, if you've if you've never seen, if you want a hint of how Stephen Moffat ended up writing for Doctor Who back when he was doing coupling there is an amazing rant one of the characters goes on about cushions couch cushions mm -hmm. and how useless they are and it at one point it comes up that couch cushions uh 
and Daleks, like couch cushions protect you from Daleks or something. Mm-hmm. And it's it's such a really good joke. It's it's a great scene and you can look it up on YouTube. Um like coupling couch cushion rant if you've never seen it, but you know, it's it's great. Um but the uh the the great thing about it is is that like every time you get one of these like uber creepy Stephen Moffat episodes, you're like, well, that's gonna be the thing in an entire generation's nightmares for you know, your shadow, a stone statue, a child. <laughs> The thing is, is, like, I had a thing about statues before the Weeping Angels. So, you know, when I saw the Weeping Angel thing, I was like, oh, thank goodness somebody is on my vibe. <laughs> like, th- this this guy is on my wavelength. I'm so glad somebody else realizes this is a thing. Um, And, like... There is nothing creepier than a child about that age, which is one of the reasons why we're doing today's episode, you know? A scared child calling for his mother in a very spooky, ghost-like voice. Yeah. Um, And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, of things... That Moffat has been able to do in the series throughout his his time, where you're just like, "Oh, that's so brilliant," and also, I hate you for that. You know, <laughs> a new generation of kids hiding behind the couch. But legitimately, this time, like <laughs> I, I am not making fun of anybody who was like, "I saw that episode when I was a kid, and now I have like." absolute paranoia about certain things i'm like yeah that's that's legit i'm not even gonna make fun of you if you saw that as an adult and is like and now i have a a terror of certain things you know like if if you ever saw a stephen moffat episode of doctor who one of the horror episodes and you're like and now i'm terrified of blank legit like no shame (laughs) I mean, considering these episodes are almost 20 years old, yeah, they would have been a kid when this when these aired. Yeah, but like I said, I mean, I was, we were straight up adults when, <laughs> we, so if you're our age and you saw these and you're like, well, that gave me a new fear, <laughs> I'm no judgment from me either, it, like, you do you, and that is absolutely valid. <laughs> yeah. Some of these things are straight up absolute horror movie A24 creepy. <laughs> <sighs> so, but we uh, I want to talk about the choice of doctor though cuz we got Christopher Eccleston in here and we have talked about him before 28 days later, yeah. Yeah, and that was we've talked about how that was probably the first time I personally saw him. I don't know if you saw Doctor Who uh, or... This is the first time I paid attention to Christopher Eccleston. Because I had seen 28 day- Days Later. But this is the first time I paid attention to something that Christopher... Like, like, I knew his name and not, oh, he's that guy kind of thing. 
Yeah, that's true for me as well, because I saw him in 28 Days Later, but I was paying more attention to, like, Killian Murphy and, you know, some of the other actors, because Christopher Eccleston is just kind of the creepy antagonist for, like, you know, 25, 30 minutes of that movie. Mm-hmm. And he does an excellent job, of course, but the way his part is done in that movie, you're not really paying attention to who is that actor. So when he got the job as Doctor Who, I was like, I kind of recognize this guy. What have I seen him in? So I had to go look up his IMDb and I was like, oh. Eccleston, not the first choice. The first choice that uh, Davies had had was uh, Hugh Grant, figuring that a big star would get a lot of attention onto the show. Uh, but got, we, you know, Hugh Grant, who was uh, one of the doctors in The Curse of Fatal Death, uh, but he turned down the role because he didn't really want to commit to a TV series. Years later, he would grow to re- make to regret that decision, seeing how big doc- the revival of Doctor Who became. And just imagine the alternate universe where Hugh Grant was the ninth Doctor. Yeah, I'm gonna say I'm I'm glad it wasn't. I like Hugh Grant as an actor. Mm-hmm. And he did a good job in Curse of the Fatal Death. Mm-hmm. But I think that would have taken too much away from the reboot. Do you feel it, me? It would have been the Hugh Grant show, not Doctor Who. I, I kind of think so. I kind of like the idea that I don't really know many of the Doctors until they show up on Doctor Who. Uh, also, this this probably falls in into what you just said. One of the other actors under consideration was Judy Dench. I mean, I might have liked that better just because I, I love Judy Dench and Judy Dench can do no wrong. Imagine a woman as the Doctor that early. Yeah, I mean that was another thing they did in Curse of the Fatal Death because that was, I mean, Joanna Lumley was the first person to even jokingly play the Doctor as a woman, and I think it would have been really awesome. But also remember, even after the reboot did so well, look at all the crap Jodie got. Yeah, she and. Undeserved, undeserved, honestly, and we can. But go I mean, with- just the announcement of her casting. I'm not yeah. even talking about how her series turned out. I'm talking about just when they said, "Hey, Jodie Whittaker is going to be the Doctor," and it was an absolute, you know, Captain Marvel, She-Hulk kind of nonsense. How dare they turn the Doctor into a woman? The Doctor has always been a man. So I, I'm. Also kind of glad it wasn't Judy Dench because I worry that the series might not have gotten off the ground if we'd have had to deal with not only like 
they're bringing Doctor Who back, and it's going to be different, and it's not going to be Tom Baker, and it's not, he's not going to have a scarf, and it's going to be, like, shorter episodes, and, you know, and also a woman. You know? Because mm-hmm. there were a lot of people that were... You know, I remember when it came back out and there were a lot of people that were like, you know, they're, they're letting the queers folk guy do it. And I'm not sure if I trust that. Is he even a Doctor Who fan? And like, you know. Which is funny considering when Jody was announced instantly, Doctor Who's woke, man. They're making Doctor Who woke when the guy that brought Doctor Who back was a gay man. Who just wrote a show about gay people. And of course. John Nathan Turner. The last producer of the original series. Was a gay man. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those like. You know we talk about this all the time with Marvel. It's like you know. Tell me you've never read a comic book without telling me. Hmm. It's like tell me you haven't followed. Doctor Who without telling me. Like they don't know anything. About John Nathan Turner. You know. Hmm. They don't know anything about Russell T. Davies. And also, you can tell they've never seen a single episode of the original Queer as Folk in the UK. I mean, I've seen both series, the the UK and the US. But the in the UK series, one of the main characters is the world's biggest Doctor Who fan. It is actually a major plot point in the series. That one of the main characters is a massive Doctor Who fan. Like, and has every extant Doctor Who episode on VHS. His house is filled with Doctor Who memorabilia. He keeps losing boyfriends because he wants them to come over to his house and watch Doctor Who. <laughs> like, <laughs> the he guy does, is just a Russell T. Davis self-insert. There's that meme is, I just want someone to cuddle up and watch Doctor Who with. Yeah, I mean, he is that guy. He is such a massive nerd about Doctor Who. Let's not and forget that Russell T. Davies wrote a Doctor Who novel, Damaged Goods, for the uh, for the Virgin New Adventure series. So this guy has stroke. Yeah, but, like, if you had ever watched anything Russell T. Davies had ever done pre-Doctor Who... You know the guy is a massive Doctor Who nerd because there are Doctor Who references in all of his work. Same thing with Stephen Moffat. If you ever watched anything he ever did pre-Doctor Who, there's always Doctor Who references in his work. I mean, it's it's really funny. It's like, tell me you don't know anything about any of the people working on this reboot series. You know? So, Stay over there, Chibnall. Stay over there. We'll talk about you yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. Go away, Chibnall. We're 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 not dealing with you yet. So, you know, when you're talking about the the showrunners, and you know, there were people who were complaining about it at the time. I remember, you know, like I don't know who these guys are and everything. And it's like, well, I've I've heard of these guys. You know, I had I had seen queer as, as folk and stuff, and I was like. Well, yeah, that that kind of makes sense because, like, that dude's always talking about Doctor Who. <laughs> so we've got our Doctor. What better person to to play our companion than a British pop star? That was all I heard 
about Billy Piper. She's a British pop star. She's the UK's answer to Britney Spears. And everyone was angry because, oh no, does she even know how to act? Does she know how to do anything? Oh no, we're going to go back to the days of the screaming, the screaming uh, companion that is scared of her own shadow. Ugh, they're going to ruin Doctor Who with this. And we were proven wrong. And because even today, Rose Tyler is considered for a lot of people their favorite companion of the new era. I mean, not mine, but we can get into that later. <laughs> there, I mean, it's 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 mostly the relation the the on screen chemistry between Piper and Tennant. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, though, is that it seems like she wanted to be an actress from the get-go. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I suppose she did want to be an actress because unlike a lot of people who started their careers young, she has continued her career into adulthood. Still acting um, today. Yeah, but, you know, she went to, like, theater school as a kid and stuff like that. So she, it seems that she wanted to be an actor and then she got offered a record deal in her teens. And I guess the way a lot of people do, it's like, well, I'm not going to turn it down. You know, it's it's a foot in the door in the same, I mean, not the same industry, but, you know, an adjacent industry. We kind of see that in the States as well with teenage actors who are, you know, they're trying to make their craft as an actor, but, oh, hey, you have a good, you have a decent sounding voice. We're going to have you record an album and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a thing of, like, a lot of times if you're multi-talented, you just get an agent for various things, you know? Mm -hmm. You might get a music agent and an acting agent and a theater, you know, a, a film acting agent and a theater agent and a, you know, whatever, and cast a wide net. And whatever you land first, you just kind of end up pursuing that until you get enough fame to do the thing you really want to do. And so that might have been the way with her. You know, she had a good voice and she might have just been like, okay, you know, let me get a music agent and let me get an acting agent. And it just might have been the thing that the music agent hit first. Mm -hmm. um, so... The um, the thing is, is that it seems like acting is probably where her heart is because I don't think she's recorded in a while. She hasn't recorded an album in twenty years. Yeah, so it, but she she continues to act, so I think that's probably where she's she's at. 
And I knew nothing about her before Doctor Who. None of her songs crossed over here. So, yeah. Oh, boy. So, um, this is where we bring it down, folks. Because we've got to talk about John Barrowman, our other companion in this, uh, in the episodes we're talking about. Yes, I do love the character of Captain Jack Harkness. And this is the first episode where he is introduced. But, 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 but we got to talk about John Barrowman for a moment. So, uh, yeah. Well... I want to I want to talk about it in context, okay? Okay, all right. Because John Barrowman is, depending on who you ask, um, and at least with official Doctor Who, on the outs at the moment, um, he has been removed from current or at least recent. Um, Doctor Who and uh, audio Torchwood stuff and some of the comics uh, and all that were set to be made with Captain Jack. Um, he was, I believe he was one, it's supposed to be one of the returning companions for Jody's final episode when they had to write him out because of the controversy. Yeah. So let's talk about what happened which was back in uh 2021 um there were accusations from at least 20 women against another member of the Doctor Who reboot cast um, who is not in the episodes we're going to be talking about, but is, you know, part of this same team. Uh, Noel Clark, who played Mickey, uh, Rose's boyfriend. And Noel Clark's accusations were quite uh, serious. Um, they included all kinds of abuse, sexual harassment, bullying um, against many women um, like I said at least 20 I know of that um, came forward uh, abuse of position on set um, in order to get sexual favors from them things like that okay um not necessarily, I think, on the set of Doctor Who, but in a, a subsequent series where he was the star. So because of that, Noel Clark has, has also been removed from some appearances on Doctor Who. I think he also may have been one of the people that was supposed to be mentioned or appearing uh, as a previous companion, considering his character was uh, would go on to marry another companion, um, and 
so I think there was going to be some follow-up on what happened to the two of them, and that was dropped. And so, yeah. Anyway, the allegations against Noel Clark, extremely, extremely horrific. Okay. In the wake of all this, a video from a convention some years earlier where Noel Clark and a few of the other uh, co-stars from this era of Doctor Who were talking about John Barrowman, who was not present, mentioned that John Barrowman has a, or at least had, because we are speaking past tense, had on multiple work sites uh, a habit of exposing his genitals to co-workers as a joke, according to John Berman. Men and women, from my understanding. Men, men and women and all genders in between. It didn't really matter. Okay. When he felt the mood on set needed lightning or he was trying to make somebody laugh at an inappropriate moment or take them by surprise when he was off camera and he wanted to make them laugh on camera or something like that, he would occasionally drop trout. Okay. This is a known thing. He wrote about it in his autobiography, which I have read. It happened on more things than Doctor Who. He admits to doing it live on stage. Okay, you know, he he has done it on chat shows when he was just off camera. I mean, the the man has fully admitted this for years. It has been the subject of joking tales at many conventions and, you know, not even an open secret. Proudly, everyone would talk about this, okay? It does seem that at one point on either Doctor Who or Torchwood, he did this in front of somebody and they did it, uh, complain to one of the executive producers and he was asked to not do that again. And it does seem that he complied, from what I can tell. He has said that at one point he realized, like, oh, I am being inappropriate. I have taken this. Uh, other people are, are not seeing this as a joke in the way I'm seeing it, okay? As far as I can tell when I looked into this, unlike Noel Clark, as far as I can tell at the time of recording as I am saying this, there have been no allegations against John Barrowman that he made sexual advances towards co-workers or bullied co-workers or, you know. That being said, what he did was not appropriate. Never do that at work or in front of someone who did not consent. 
do not expose yourself to anyone who did not consent to seeing you naked. Like, 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 you you, you want to make your coworkers laugh, make a fart sound, or something. Yes, exactly that. Um, you know, tell a joke. Um, there, there is no part where your genitalia should be exposed. You know, unexpectedly in a work environment. And we have spent way too much time talking about that. Let's get back to the uh, let's get back to timey wimey fun. While Christopher Eccleston only had one season on Doctor Who, there are so many good episodes to choose from. Really, the entire first season are all bangers. So it was really hard to decide which episode to choose, which is and it mostly came down to. What is the best representation of this doctor? So we went with The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances. Again, Stephen Moffat episodes. Before we get on to that, because I, I, I did, there was something else we were talking about earlier that we wanted to kind of get to quickly, is the new wrinkle that the reboot added in, little thing called The Time War. We've kind of mentioned it in passing in, in, the, in the past since it's kind of been retroactively inserted into the classic series through external media. But yeah, the wrinkle that the Doctor is the last of the Time Lords. There was a war between the Time Lords and the Daleks, and they just eradicated each other. This is not exclusive to the series as things of that nature had been alluded to in the novels uh, that the dot that the dot time lords were destined to have a great war against an unknown enemy part of the Shalka doctor's backstory that we never saw also involved this war that that against the unseen enemy so the idea of the Time Lords and the Daleks having this final war across time itself for the fate of all creation. Uh, multiple writers have come up with it. But to have that in the... A main, a main plot point of the reboot series for basically the first half of this reboot series existence... And have the the this post-war doctor, this PTSD doctor, coming to grips with what he did, with you know, uh, you know, I saw it happen, I made it happen, as as he was the one that 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 killed the Daleks, killed the Time Lords, ended the war, and now he has to live with that, live with knowing that he killed all of his own people, that he killed all of the Daleks. Uh, jet, double genocide and he is the only survivor with that and there's a lot of survivors, survivor's guilt that goes through the doctor throughout this first season and he you know for, for lack of a better term he learns to love again uh, through, through Rose as his companion and it's only you know at the end where he regenerates into David Tennant where he kind of allows himself to let go of some of that pain. And it really adds a lot of weight to Eccleston's performance as the Doctor. 
as he still tries to be the doctor of old in some ways, but also is this battle hardened hard, you know, stone hearted doctor who lashes out at humans, stupid apes, he calls them. So it's a, it's a nice counterbalance to the doctor of old. Yeah. And this was the thing that kind of shocked me when they reintroduced the doctor in Rose, because like I said, I didn't know a lot about the lore of Doctor Who, but I was like, I could sworn I remembered there being more Time Lords, and he was like, I'm the last of the Time Lords, and I'm like, um, excuse me? You know, and then I, and then I started seeing friends online going like, what's all this last of the Time Lords crap? <laughs> and I was like, oh good, I'm not the only one who's confused. <laughs> Um, and then as they they started, you know, getting into it more, I was like, oh, okay. But yeah, I mean, as far as that, you know, really when we were debating this, it came down to did we want to do the episodes we chose or the other one we debated was Dalek? Because that really gets to the heart of the doctor as the final survivor of the time war at least as far as we knew then at running into a dalek being what he thought was the only survivor from the dalek side that is such a a pivotal moment these two eternal enemies meeting under these unusual circumstances and realizing that they are more similar than they realize being the last of their respective races. Yeah, there's, there's a moment in, in Dalek where the, the Dalek finally realizes what happened. He's like, you know, where are all the other Daleks? And the doctor's like, I killed them all. And he's like, well, where are the, the Time Lords then? And he's like, well, I killed them all too. And the, the Dalek goes like, well, I'm all alone. And he's like, yeah. And the Dalek says, well, you're, you're all alone too. And the the camera is so tight on the daughter's face and Eccleston just does this like twitch of his cheek and like nothing else on his face moves but there's like just this one tiny muscle in his cheek that twitches where you can see how much that hurts him because yeah, I mean, it's it's been stated several times throughout the later course of this series that no matter what companion he has, there really isn't anyone in the universe that will ever understand him or what he does. There are some that try, but they'll never understand his experiences, his life, 
the fact that he is a 900-year-old alien that has seen the beginning and ending of the universe. Is there anyone in the, I mean, other than another Time Lord who would understand what he's done and what he has to go through? Especially what he's done. Well, the only other creature that can even come close to understanding any of it happens to be one of his greatest enemies. Yeah, I mean, when we first met the Doctor, of course, he's traveling with Susan. So there's somebody else who understands him. And then, uh, you know, they've they've got Barbara and Ian who are there as the dumb apes, you know, mm-hmm. that that are with them. But by the time of the reboot, the Doctor is the only one who understands his life. You know, and that also upset people because, okay, so if he's the final Time Lord, is Susan dead? Is Ramana dead? Is the Master dead? These other time, is the Rani dead? All of these other Time Lords we've seen throughout the series. The implication is they're dead. As far as season one of the reboot is concerned, not counting anything else, not counting it, as we knew it in 2005 when these episodes aired, the implication was they're all dead. And the doctor is the only survivor. But he even says in Empty Child that he was once a father and a grandfather and now he's neither but he's still a doctor but he's still a doctor and that right there says okay they're they're dead you know susan is dead we never in the original series really found out much about where susan came from (laughs) but the reboot mentions you know he was a father I mean, it's mentioned that several times, you know, that the doctor was a father and the Mm -hmm. doctor was a grandfather. So it says right there in an empty child was a father, was a grandfather. Now I'm neither. Uh, And in an earlier episode, he does say that I believe it's Aliens of London where he says that to... To Rose, where he says, you know, I was a father, I was a grandfather, I'm 900 years old, to this shock of Rose, like, no way, you're not 900 years old, you're, how can you be a grandfather, you look so young. Yeah. Um, so, it's stated over the course of the, at least, you know, that that first series that they are trying to get across and I don't know if it was always the plan that they wanted to keep him the only one but or if they if they wanted to bring back other time lords at the very least the master mm. um 
because that happened pretty quickly. A few years from, from this point, yeah. But the I wonder if they in in bringing back the series if they wanted to go like you know what the whole Gallifrey thing is too complicated let's just have him be the the last Time Lord also budget because building an entire alien planet society probably wouldn't be cheap even in the old series it didn't look it didn't really match what what how it was described through the characters yeah but Let's talk about the reason that we we picked this particular two-parter. Because, like you said, this entire season, I don't think that there really is a weak episode. Maybe the long game, if we had to choose. Aliens of London and Boomtown because of farting aliens, but... But yeah. even, even with that, the... If you if you take away that the Slitheen are kind of there to be like, you know, oh yeah, kids watch this show and kids like fart jokes. Mm-hmm. The actual plot, not that bad. Mm-hmm. The idea that like, oh, the Slitheen make fart noises in their human suits is kind of stupid. But I think the long game is maybe the the weakest just because they introduce the idea of like what if the doctor had a companion that was really crap just for one episode closest thing to an evil companion but he's not even evil he's just like ignorant this is it, it long game was proof that this is why the doctor chooses the companion and not the companion chooses the companion. Yeah, I mean it sets up satellite five for the finale later, yeah. you know, for for the finale two parter. But and you know, it's nice to st- to see Simon Pegg in there. But Simon Pegg doesn't really get to do much as a villain because he's not really the villain. He's just a lackey, um, which is kind of a waste of your Simon Pegg. Mm. But I'm that maybe is the one kind of yawn if. If we have to say, and even that one is better than a lot of other episodes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, this whole series, you know, Ninth Doctor is kind of not really a snoozer in the bunch. But if you have to choose... I think that Empty Child and Doctor Dances is the absolute pinnacle. This is a perfect introduction to Doctor Who to somebody. Like, if someone were to want want to know what does what is Doctor Who, this is definitely in my list of this is 
this is you need to watch this first. If you like this, you'll like Doctor Who. Yeah, because it's it's a horror plot and a sci-fi plot and a historical and a historical all mixed together. It's got it explains enough about who the doctor is without getting too into the weeds. You know, but you don't have to know too much of the lore to understand what's going on. It's like, he's a time traveler. There you go. <laughs> and the, 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 the plot of Empty Child Doctor Dances is... The fact that this entire episode is because of Captain Jack. And, and Jack... You know, he starts off saying that he's a time agent. He turns out to be a former time agent. He's a con man. He sets up this entire thing with this alien uh, medical transport, putting it in the doctor's uh, in in the doctor's field of vision, so they follow it to 1941 London during the Blitz. Because, you know, he wants to be a conman. He's going to sell, sell this ship to a time agent. He knows the bombs are going to drop. Destroy it. Oh, oopsie. I didn't know the bomb was going to drop. I guess you're out. I guess. Uh, oh, well, let's go have a few drinks and I keep your money. <laughs> so, and he keeps saying throughout the first episode and half of the second episode, I did nothing wrong. I didn't kill anybody. I harmed no one. When he realizes at the end, not only did you harm someone, you killed a child by having this thing fall on him. And what you thought was an empty container was filled with these nanobots that are made to, to repair soldiers on the battlefield. And since they've never known what a human looks like, because they've never been on a humanoid planet, they brought this child back to life with a gas mask who just wants to be with his mother. And now these nanobots think that is what humans are supposed to be. And he could have ultimately doomed humanity by having them all be gas mask wearing zombies asking for their mother. Here's the thing, though, is that Jack didn't actually kill... Jamie, the little boy, mm. is the the ship crashed near it. And Jack said, re remember, he said, I made sure it didn't fall on any living things. So the ship crashed near Jamie. Jamie had been killed by an earlier bomb. Jack made sure it fell in the area that was being bombed. So, Jamie got killed by an earlier bomb, and the ship fell near it, and it went out to heal the warriors, because that's what it did. And the first warrior it found, quote-unquote, was Jamie, who had just been killed by the bomb that had dropped just before it landed. So, Jack... Jack's action didn't actually kill anybody. 
But his actions still were the yeah, cause but of- but his actions still were the cause of the rest of it. It just he didn't act. It it wasn't the the cause of Jamie's death. Jamie was already dead when the pot got there. But the um the thing is though is that I really I really liked the premise mm-hmm. of the the nanogenes and how they put it back wrong because there are several sci-fi stories that deal with this same premise. I mean, a recent episode of Star Trek uh, Strange New Worlds just used this same premise. Like, within the last month or so um of like something that fixes creatures finding a creature and not understanding how it's supposed to be put back together and putting it back together wrong so i love i love when sci-fi uses this premise of like what happens when a creature gets put back together wrong and I think this is one of the better uses of that. Mm-hmm. Especially when they, you know, kind of, for lack of a better term, Scooby-Doo, his, you know, uh, Jamie's powers. How is he as strong as he is? Oh, because these nanogenes prepare the fallen soldiers for war. That's why he's strong, because he's a, they think he's a warrior. Well, how can he communicate through the radio lines? Well, because, as we see... Uh, Jack's ship is also of the same race that these nanogenes belong to, and that's what they can do. They can communicate to each other via anything, any kind of radio device. Yeah, I mean, which is useful in a war zone, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, patching into other people's, you know, the, the enemy's comm lines and stuff. Um, but the thing is, is that I I like the idea that Jamie, this whole thing about the are you my mummy means that Jamie, who's supposed to be like five or six, had already begun to suspect the big twist in the show, which was that his older sister was actually his mother. Yep, Nancy, who... And she, throughout the episode, again, the first episode and a half, it's like, this is my little brother Jamie, my little brother Jamie. And then it's at the end where the doctor puts all the pieces together. How old are you, Nancy? Old enough to have a child. You know, you were a teenager five years ago, teenage mother in in nineteen forties London. Yeah, and the the thing is, is that I I like the idea that her, I mean, not like, but as a storytelling device, mm. I like the idea that her guilt over losing track of her own child in the Blitz and him getting killed that she feels compelled to become a mother figure to all these other children 
all these other children who seemingly were sent away during the Blitz. And we've talked about that in a couple of other movies we've talked about in the same time area. But uh, some of those kids never made it to the countryside. Some of those kids did make it to the countryside and came back. It's very subtle, but one of the kids says there was a man there. Being yeah, that reason. was a that was a thing that I didn't get until this most recent rewatch, and I don't know how it passed me over. That a lot of these kids, you know, were sent away for safety, and they found themselves in abusive situations. Mm, yeah, I mean, this is a extremely adult episode for a kids show because it deals with like you know, the war, which you kind of, I mean, that's a different thing in British media because a lot of British children's media deals with, you know, World War II and kids being sent away during the Blitz and things like that. Um, But, like, then it also deals with the teen pregnancy aspect and, you know, the the little subtle inferences to why might a child flee back to the Blitz rather than stay in the country. When the Blitz is the better option. Yeah, that's, it's horrifying, but yeah. Um, and, and, and you know, of course, the one thing people know Captain Jack about is his omnisexuality. Yeah, and I like this. This was an extremely controversial episode, uh, you know, two-parter, but it's it's a single story. So this this was a, an extremely controversial episode. Because it changed the nature of the Doctor for good. Because all through the classic series, people had debated, like, okay, you know, yeah, the Doctor has a granddaughter, but is she, like, his granddaughter? Or is it, like, a term of endearment? Does granddaughter mean something different among Time Lords? We never hear about her, you know, Susan's parents or the Doctor having children or a spouse. The general, I mean, the among older fans, it was just their cover was grandfather and granddaughter that they weren't a thing. Then there is the 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 fandom. Oh, the fandom belief of uh, what is referred to as looming, where Time Lords just uh, Jenny, the Doctor's daughter, at that episode, how yeah. how she gets was loomed from DNA of the Tenth Doctor, and that became a different person. That was that came from external media of older Doctor Who of that's how Time Lords reproduce. They didn't reproduce sexually because. They are so intelligent and f- such higher beings that they have evolved past the need for that. And they just take their DNA and it, that's how they produce children that way. When they when this episode is called The Doctor Dances, they don't mean the cha-cha. Yeah, and 
I mean, there was a large portion of the fandom. I mean, you know, fanfic notwithstanding, but a a very large portion of the fandom was absolutely, you know, married, for lack of a better term, to the idea that the Doctor was asexual and aromantic. I mean, you know, we jokes we about Two and Jamie, you know, to the side here, but a lot of people had a lot invested in the idea that the Doctor was a completely asexual, aromantic creature. And we kind of talked about that when we talked about Susan, when 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 she came back for the Five Doctors. She had to fight to be able to call the doctor grandfather because the producers of that particular story did not want to insinuate that the doctor had any kind of sexual encounters with anyone. Hence, he would have a granddaughter. The doctor does not dance. Batman does not. Well, that, that, that's, a, that, that's a different thing for a different time. <laughs> Superheroes don't do that. That's what heroes do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're getting all over the place here. But yeah, this is the Doctor dances. Yeah, the Doctor, you know, I would say it, but I'm trying to keep this one PG. The Doctor. Yeah, much like Captain America. Exactly. <laughs> um. So, yeah, I mean, and that's Rose's whole issue at the beginning of the the episode is that she's very disappointed in the doctor because he's not very ahem, exciting. He doesn't scan for alien technology. He's not very Spock. Yeah, she's seen one too many sci-fi movies. Well, I mean, I think the, the thing there was, you know, with... Spock being the unexpected breakout sexy one, you know, they she thought wanted... Kirk, they thought Kirk was going to be the sexy one, and then it was Spock. <laughs> she wanted Pomfar? Yeah, I mean, you know, she wants a little bit of excitement on her time travel journey with the man who just whisked her away in his... RV, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's also something that Amy Palmer would go through later on in, in, in the later series. Yeah, I mean, it's... She just left her boyfriend for this guy. That she barely knows. A that, mysterious man with a magic machine whisks you away. What do you think he wants? And she is all about that. And so... Hence, you know, we get Captain Jack come in, who is exactly able to do what the Doctor does, as in he's got this, you know, magic spaceship, he travels through time, he's got a sonic screwdriver gun. type thing. He's got a well, sonic gun. <laughs> well, no, he's got the little he's got the little clicker that he keeps using to like turn on Big Ben and uh, start music and stuff. That looks very much like a sonic screwdriver in the way he uses it at first. Putting the the scarf around her hands and healing her, you know, with magical stuff and you know, 
pouring her a drink and you know then they dance uh you know so she even makes the, this reference is that is the, in, you know uh you know do you want to talk business or do you want to seduce me yeah and i mean it's it's very it's exactly what she wants. She's finally getting the adventure that she wants with a handsome man, you know? Mm-hmm. The entire thing is is that the doctor does get a little jealous. You know? Here's mm-hmm. here's the cute chick that he brought along and she's looking at somebody else, you know? But, and, and it's such an obvious con man as well. Mm-hmm. Because Jack is such an obvious con man right from the beginning. Even Rose figures it out that it's it's <laughs> it, it's a con because she says, well, I can't give you what you want. I, get, I need to talk with my partner about this first. Yeah. Implying, implying, the, implying that she and the doctor are, are time agents and... She cannot make a decision without consulting her, quote, commanding officer. Yeah. Which she calls Mr. Spock. Yeah, only because Jack didn't recognize the name. He's from from too far into future. That's kind of uh, sad that by the 53rd century, no one watches Star Trek. Yeah. Well, maybe they just don't on Bo. Hmm. And and I do and I do like that conversation they have later on when they get stuck in that room after Jack teleports out, where they finally have that conversation, where the doctor says, "Yes, I've danced, but there's work to be done." It, you know when, you know, if she even says, "You know, the world, the world, um, the world won't end just because the doctor dances," and. It's in that moment where he's trying to use the screwdriver to to get the window open so they can escape, and he just gives in 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 that moment. All right, you want you you know you want that 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 dance. If if it'll make you happy, Rose, I'll give you a dance right now, while we're locked in a room with potential gas mask zombies trying to destroy us. But it was, it's a, it's a nice moment there. Where, you know, like, again, the the doctor shows that he can, that he's not as innocent as so much of the fandom would want to believe. And that Susan is absolutely his granddaughter. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not a euphemism. She, she is his granddaughter. Biologically. Yeah. Um, we still don't know any more about his family at this point, but... He uh, may or may not have had a brother at some point. (laughs) Yeah. The, uh... The thing, though, about that... That thing is, though, is that... This is where... I both like how the series takes it and dislike how the series takes it. Because while I do not want 
Doctor Who to be a romance show necessarily. I think it's okay to establish that occasionally, now and then, the Doctor might have some interest. It might not be his primary interest. You know? Yeah, the the doctor is not made of stone. Yeah. Um, Rose, Rose Tyler. Uh, River Song. Yasmin Khan. Well, here here's my here's my problem though. My problem with it is though is that the show immediately establishes Rose as like Oh, this is the Doctor's big great love or whatever. Now, I realized that later on we would get other things like, you know, marriage to River Song and stuff like that. And that plays a lot better. That's much better written. But to me, while I don't mind Rose as a companion, there are definitely less interesting and more grating companions. It's just that they don't really do much to set up Rose to me as much of an equal in personality. I'm not talking about like she has to be an equal to the doctor in skill, but as far as in personality for the doctor for me to buy that as a relationship the doctor wants before they start going down the path of you know like in Dalek you know the Dalek taunting him with like oh look you can't save the woman you love or whatever you know Hmm. and I'm like "Eh, eh," you know you can immediately buy that Rose has a crush on the doctor But for the Doctor to reciprocate that early, like maybe later on in the tenant years and stuff, you can start to think like, oh, he's got some feelings for her or whatever. They've been through a lot and all that kind of stuff. But during the Eccleston years, it feels a little... I don't know. It feels a little forced. It kind of does. Again, the the age difference between the two actors being one, the two the age difference between the two characters being another, and also it's more of a you know again this is a doc this is a the the doctor is a soldier just leaving a war and trying to find out how to live outside of a war again. And Rose just happens to be the first person he's allowed him his he's allowed his hearts to open up to. You know, he he's this is the first person he's opened up to since the war started. And it has evolved into a more caring relationship between the two. But yeah, the especially the 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 kiss they share. Uh, in the parting of the ways. 
Yeah. So uh, while I do like that it establishes it, and while I think that it plays a lot better with the tenth Doctor than it does with the ninth, mm-hmm. I still think that Rose never felt like a match for the doctor as far as a romantic partner she's she's a good companion i like her as a companion but if they're trying to build a romantic relationship or whatever i can only ever see that as like a one-sided crush from rose the first time I've ever seen in the new series, first time I've ever seen the Doctor have a match personality-wise would be Donna Noble. And they go through great length throughout that entire series season to imply that these two are not romantically in, uh, involved or attracted to each other in that way. Which is a nice change-up because we go from Rose straight to Martha, who also has a crush on the Doctor, the Doctor who's just getting over losing Rose. Yeah, and honestly, you know, you can you can tell how how River and the Doctor's relationship formed, but I agree with you about Donna. Like, if they were ever going to be like, oh, he fell in love with a totally human companion... Donna is the only one that feels like a match for the Doctor in a personality sense. And I'm very sad. You know, I I like the idea of, like, just friends companions. Mm -hmm. You know, even after the reveal that, like, you know, yeah, the Doctor does have romantic relationships and that's fine. Um, but I hate the fact that they worked so hard to do it with the one companion he actually has the best chemistry with. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there, there's a reason they're bringing Catherine Tate back to be with, uh, David Tennant in the 60th. Yeah. I mean, if anybody has ever seen the, um, Much Ado About Nothing with David Tennant, and and Catherine Tate it is one of the best things ever and they are an um, amazing Benedict and Beatrice um and that is some some romantic and sexual tension you can cut with a knife uh love it but yeah uh back to this though um this was the first proper i mean they tried to do a horror episode with the unquiet dead charles dickens yes yeah and and ghosts and stuff but i really think that this that the empty child was the first really proper horror episode this is definitely a hide behind the couch worthy episode yeah, I mean, all you have to do is is do that. Are you my mummy? And you know, then everybody is like, Nyeh. 
and he just throughout the whole movie is like, I can hear you. Let me in. Yeah, that that bit where the doctor where Rose goes like, what is that noise? And the doctor goes, the tape has run out. It ran out thirty seconds ago, <laughs> and you realize like, and then he goes, I sent it to his room. This is his room, <laughs> and you realize like. Oh, like it's still, even though you know it's coming, it's still such a like goosebumps moment mm-hmm. at, at that point. But the the idea that like there's that entire hospital, you know, and and I think it hits worse now like post covid mm. the idea of the the doctor that we meet in the hospital when he goes physical injuries as a plague you know they tried to treat the little boy and they touched him and then they all had the same you know they got turned into what he was you know the, the scar on the hand, the gas mask, and constantly saying, "Are you my mummy?" Collapse. Well, but they, they, they all had the same injuries. You know, it's yeah. like you know, trauma to the head and trauma to the chest, and the scar on the hand, and then the gas mask fused to the you know, and then it became you know not just the the doctors that worked in his room but then the people on the same floor and then the people in the ward and then the people in the you know and the soldiers and then the soldiers outside and then the doctor goes oh it's become airborne and pretty soon the entire planet will just be this because of jack yeah, because, because Jack wanted to make a con. And I love that the that the the doctor, you know, Jack keeps saying it's em- it was empty. It's an empty ambulance. I made sure that it was empty. And the doctor goes, "What did you think was going to be in it? Bandages? It's an alien ambulance. You weirdo, like." <laughs> and I do like how Rose kind of kind of gets it. Oh, it's filled with nanogenes. Exactly. <laughs> the same nanogenes that fixed you up on Jack's ship. The same nanogenes that fixed me up. It fixed the kid up, but it doesn't know what a human looks like. It's so fascinating to me the idea that the resolution is that the the nanogenes suddenly realize like oh no 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 we screwed up like this this is the this is the parent dna yeah and i i do like how the one thing that nancy is afraid of is emotionally connecting to her child Again, even telling her that she's not her mother. And it's only of admitting that she is Jamie's mother and hugging him, having that 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 bonding moment is what saves everybody. 
that allows the nanogenes to read Nancy. Oh, she's the mother. We screwed up. We we got to fix this. Yeah, and I I like that that that's the moment of you know when the when the doctor goes up and pulls the the gas mask off and you see the the little boy standing there and you're like oh that moment of relief you know and I like how how Eccleston plays this off and you know you know you know he's saying this please please give me this one give me this one win please you know even after all these years I still cry at that moment he is so good at delivering that speech that you you know that this doctor in particular, you know, because this is the most broken we ever see the doctor mm-hmm. is in the, the Eccleston version. The post-war doctor. Yeah, I mean, this is him, like, finally coming back to a place where he's felt comfortable, I guess, is the the best word. Especially since there's at least two or three deaths in every episode up until this point. Yeah. But, you know, he's come back to Earth after the Time War, I guess because it's the the place where he's had the most good memories, you know, made the most friends, I suppose. And he's had so much trauma... And he sees his one chance to just be like, in the middle of all of this death, in the middle of the German blitz, he can't save all of London. There's still death all all around him. But he can save this one group of people that wasn't supposed to die. Just this once, everyone lives. Yeah, and that that Murray Gold score in the background as it swells. Oh my goodness, that music is so amazing. And the way that they, you know, sometimes the CGI in this episode not so great because has an age well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's still creepy to watch the the gas mask you know, come out of the people's mouths and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's not exactly the best CGI. Um, But the way the nanogenes swirl around still holds up. At least that part of the CGI is still good. And so the way that golden glow comes off of the doctor and, you know, spreads out to all of the afflicted people and you know with the music swelling behind it and it's just like that magical moment of like yeah i've got it you know and he's like oh you want to see moves rose you know (laughs) oh it's such a good moment and it just it still brings tears to my eyes like even after all this time it's one of my favorite moments and i mean justice once everyone lives really comes into play when you Again, we go back to multiple people dying in every episode and the rest of the season. Yeah, and and honestly, it won't come back until 
the final episode of the season when Rose kind of does the same thing in a similar fashion. I mean, the Daleks don't live, but she kind of does the same thing with the humans. I bring life and screwed that up because it brought back Jack forever. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting to, to watch that come back at the end of the season because yeah, you know, the Daleks don't live in that situation, but we see her bring back everybody on the station and presumably she brings back everybody on the planet as well. It's interesting because does everybody live in that situation? Because yes, the doctor lives, but the doctor also doesn't mm. in that situation. So, you know, uh, but, but, the, but the doctor needed that win in the doctor dances. Yeah. He needed, he because it, it reignited that hope that he had lost as a result of the time war. It's interesting because I think that's the the point where he starts to go on that path towards where he's going to end up as the tenth Doctor. By the time we we see him at the end of parting the ways you know mm. the dalek emperor there is trying to goad him into using his like big powerful weapon that he's built which will wipe out not only the daleks but the humans What's left of the humans, at least. Mm-hmm. And Because he Do- did it once, he'll do it again. Yeah, and the Dalek Emperor's like, you know, okay, so what's what's it going to be? Are you going to be a killer or are you going to be a coward? And the Doctor's like, coward every time. You gotta wonder what would happen if Rose hadn't stepped in. I mean, going back to Dalek... There's a huge difference between the doctor that's holding that weapon to a Dalek. Him saying exterminate. The doctor saying exterminate to a Dalek with a weapon in his hand versus the doctor at the end of the parting of the way saying coward every time. Yeah. And I do think it's something in that two-parter that is really the the moment that he takes that turn. Mm-hmm. He starts Uh, to become the Doctor of old in a way. And honestly, I'm not even sure he becomes the Doctor of old as the Doctor we see now in the new series. Mm. Because a lot of people have pointed out, you know, the Doctor talks about in the new series, like, oh, I don't like guns and whatever, and I abhor violence and stuff, and then people will intercut that with the Doctor using guns and Venusian jiu-jitsu and, Mm -hmm. like, all his old stuff and, you know, sword fighting and, you know. And it's like, the Doctor of old was kind of violent. You know, we we talked about the the episode where he just like shoves a dude in a vat of acid and makes jokes about it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the the current, you know, reboot Doctor post Time War would not do that. And we even get the the bit in this episode about Jack having his sonic gun and Jack talking about like, well, he can't go back for more replacement batteries because somebody blew up the the, the factory. factory and the doctor's like, yeah, I visited there once. Once. And planted a banana tree. <laughs> Be- well, a banana grove because bananas are awesome and guns are not, you know? And you can tell that's like a post-Time War Doctor thing. Mm-hmm. He's had enough of violence at that point. He is very anti-gun at that point. Mm-hmm. He's seen enough death in his existence to last another 900 years. But I think that that moment at the end of the Doctor Dances is the point where we start to get the transition into what will be the goofier, happier David Tennant version. Where Mm -hmm. most of the time he's you know, skipping around, saying weird stuff and licking everything. Alonzi. And then he's got these moments where, like, suddenly it's really dark again. He drops the persona and then he just, I'm the doctor and I'm going to stop you. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, we'll talk about this when, when we get to, to the 10th Doctor next time, but I'm not sure it's so much a persona as trying to revert back to some of who he was as the fourth doctor and as the seventh doctor and you know i mean it's something that comes back throughout the modern series where we have a more fun-loving doctor in like tenant and smith and even in capaldi and whitaker but when they get pushed to that point they drop it. They completely drop that that persona, that 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 whatever persona that doctor is, and just becomes the cold alien again. Yeah, it's like they don't want to be the the war doctor anymore, but if they have to be, mm-hmm. um, which I kind of like, and I think that the. The really good thing about kind of the first chunk of the Eccleston run was the doctor trying to not get over the time war because it's obvious the doctor is not ever getting over the time war. Um, but that the the doctor is having trouble being any part of who he was before the time war. And that's, you could say that about anyone who has gone to war. It is very hard to readjust to civilian life after being in a war, especially, especially in a situation where you have to have taken someone else's life. Especially the number of lives that this doctor has taken. 
Yeah. And and I I think that it's a a good way to to do I think it's a good way to show that story. Mm. And I think that that's why I like these episodes in particular is that it starts out with kind of the post-war doctor and by the time we end the episode we're starting to see shades of who the doctor will become in future. Mm-hmm. But uh, the big question, the big question that had a, that that a lot of people had to ask was why did Christopher Eccleston leave Doctor Who after only one season? The short version that this is the story that Eccleston has said. It was during that first block of filming. He felt very uncomfortable in the environment that was filming this show. He had basically while he as the star was treated well and Billy as the co-star was treated well. Nobody else was treated well. The extras were not. The catering was not. uh, uh, Camera people, stunt people. Just it was a general toxic environment that he openly complained about to his superiors who did not really do much about it. In his own words, his problems were with his, as he says, my relationship with my three immediate supervisors, the showrunner, the producer, and the co-producer broke down irreparably during the first block of filming and never recovered. They lost trust in me and I lost faith in them. So, however, the production schedule that the first season had just was not the environment that Eccleston wanted to be in. And after the end of that first filming block, he said, I'm I'm out, write me out of the show. I'm done. I, I don't want to be a part of this. So they eventually immediately started the recasting of a new doctor to be introduced in the finale, which we get David Tennant. As to not spoil this, they actually filmed two different endings for the parting of the ways. The one that we saw with uh, Eccleston regenerating into David Tennant and the alternate ending where where the where Rose was it Rose collapses on the TARDIS floor after after the uh, time vortex is taken out of her body and on the law and the doctor turning around to see an alarm on the TARDIS screen saying life form dying. Now, granted, that alternate ending was never meant to be aired. It was only meant to be shown to critics as to not spoil the regeneration because they wanted to save that they until the episode aired but then news broke that Eccleston was leaving the show and that David Tennant will be coming on in the new Christmas in the Christmas special and they threw all of that out so there is an alternate ending somewhere in the ether of of uh, of parting of the ways that shows potentially Rose dying from being exposed to the time vortex 
that has never been released to this day. It was never on any of previous DVD releases, Blu-ray releases, digital releases. And I can't, granted, it's not going to be a great ending, nor would have any kind of special effects added to it. But it, I, it is curious to, to, to see what this alternate ending would have been, even if there was no plans to follow up on it. Yeah. Um, I mean, when they, when they filmed that, they filmed it with... The abs- when they filmed the real ending, um, they filmed it with an absolute skeleton crew the minimum amount of people they could get away with. Um, and they snuck David Tennant onto the set um, when everybody else was gone. And they filmed his scene, which is why he says so little, you know, um, I, I like. I don't think Billy Piper was even there when they filmed that part. Yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think she was either, because that would have given away they were filming Doctor Who. Um, and I mean, David Tennant was already kind of known in the UK. He had done a couple of things that had gotten, you know, some, some stuff and he had uh already done his his part in Harry Potter at the time um so i think they snuck him on to make it look like he was filming something else or maybe they put him in a costume or something that hit his face i mean he was already known as a massive hoobie and they could have just said he's filming a guest spot but the um and then they they snuck him around to the TARDIS. I I heard the story at one point from him, but I don't remember all the details. Um, and then basically they filmed for like half a day for him to do the two lines. Uh, and then you know snuck him off again and i think there was like one cameraman and one person to do the lights and one to do the sound and that was it um and i think like the you know the the director um and that was i mean there was like four people on set you know it's like because <laughs> um, they, they didn't want the news getting out that eccleston was leaving because they were filming this regeneration before the first episode even aired yeah. So the but the news got out anyway. And then the the BBC kind of did Eccleston dirty because at the time, and I remember it coming out at the time, and it was it was years before BBC admitted they lied about it. At the time, they said, "Oh, Eccleston only agreed to come on for one series. That was that was all he was ever gonna do." And they said that Eccleston didn't want to get typecast. So he agreed to come on and reboot the series. And then he was, he wanted to go off and do other things. But that was never true. And apparently he would have been willing to continue as the doctor had things gone better. Mm -hmm. 
and 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 Eccleston even said that he had to move to the United States and get acting jobs because BBC basically blacklisted him for leaving Doctor Who the way he did. And still to this day, they're not really keen to give him work. The BBC, at least. He was contacted to come back for the 50th anniversary. Let's 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 he was supposed to be the war doctor. That was Stephen Moffat's idea. He wanted to bring Eccleston back. So it would be Eccleston, Tennant and Smith in one adventure. That's how he wanted it. But Eccleston declined. He considered it. He declined because he felt that the script was disrespectful to his doctor or his persona, his persona of the doctor. The way he performed the doctor, his what he put into the doctor, he felt the script was disrespectful to it. So he never, so he declined it, and they eventually went with uh, John Hurt, which love John Hurt as the War Doctor, it's awesome. But yet there is that alternate universe where Christopher Eccleston was the War Doctor, the one that fought in the Time War. The the thing is, is that he had such a bad time with Doctor Who, and I, I feel so bad for him that it took him years to recover. And he he also refused to do conventions until just a couple of years ago. Um, and... He says now, I don't really know what what made him consider doing his first convention, but he says that now he quite enjoys doing them and that they have helped him heal a lot of the emotional trauma he felt from doing Doctor Who and that he, even if he doesn't, have a good working relationship with the BBC itself that he feels better about the fans and the show and the work he did. He came back to do Big Finish. He's done three seasons of audio drama so far. The happier ending, not the happiest possible ending, but it's a happier ending and it's good to see that Eccleston has at least mended fences with the Doctor Who fandom and Doctor Who as a show, even though Fences haven't been amended with the BBC. On yeah, that, I mean, yeah. I I quite I, I I really like him in the part, mm-hmm. and he was such an amazing doctor. I hope that one day there's more fences mended, and we we get a little bit more of him in you know cameos and callbacks yeah. on screen. If I mean, we're almost at the twentieth anniversary of these episodes. I would love if they did a, a, a return. I don't see it happening. But to see Eccleston and possibly Shudigawa doing something together would be awesome. I don't see it happening, but it'd be awesome if it did. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's all we can say about the ninth Doctor, Christopher Eccleston. Next month, we will continue this retrospective with the 10th Doctor, David Tennant. But for now, we are going to be putting the TARDIS away And next week, we are, well, 
I can't say if we're celebrating it or not, but it is the end of summer. Summer is going away. We are going to be celebrating the end of summer with uh, the leader of the club himself, Mickey Mouse. We are diving back into the Mickey Mouse shorts with the wonderful summer of Mickey Mouse. Uh, it's going to be fun going back to 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 these newer Mickey shorts and and because we had we had fun last time talking about them. We're going to have fun again talking about them now. Yeah, I I like when we do shorts. <laughs> so come back next week for the wonderful summer of Mickey Mouse, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversations on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads at Rewatching the Magic. We are on the X, formerly known as Twitter, at Rewatch the Magic. And new episodes are available every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it. Podcasts are fun. But there's work to be done. We encourage you to get involved. Here are some organizations we support. The American Civil Liberties Union fights for the constitutional rights of all Americans. Find them at aclu.org. The National Network of Abortion Funds helps people find access to safe abortion services. Their site is abortionfunds.org. The Trevor Project provides a 24-7 crisis helpline for LGBTQ youth and education services for schools on LGBTQ issues. They can be found at thetrevorproject.org. Or find a way to help in your area.